our story became a rallying cry for all people who wanted to include their children. Not because it was easy, but because it's the right thing to do. Because the law said you could do it, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, that was our goal. And it wasn't just about children who are high-functioning. It's about all special needs kids and kids who are, have physical disabilities, cognitive disabilities. I suddenly realized we were like the voice of so many different families struggling with the same issue. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Jody Samuels says that people used to say, when we grow up, we want to be like the Samuels. Until 2008, everything about her life seemed perfect. She and her physician husband lived in Manhattan. They traveled widely. They ran a successful organization. They had two beautiful children. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. And then in February 2008... After the birth of her daughter, Kayla, a doctor entered her room and said, Mrs. Samuels, did you do genetic testing? At that moment, her entire life changed. Her daughter had Down syndrome, and she and her husband, Gavin, almost immediately became activists. Jody Samuels is a speaker, nonprofit leader, world traveler, Jewish community activist, special needs advocate, wife and mother. Originally from South Africa, Jody and her husband have lived in five countries and nine cities, making an impact in each community. Her new book, Chutzpah, Wisdom, and Wine, The Journey of an Unstoppable Woman, is a funny and moving memoir about her life and, in particular, her fight to allow her daughter, and everyone with special needs, to be genuinely included in all aspects of life. Jody Samuels, thank you very much for joining me today on The Orthodox Conundrum. Thank you, Rabbi Khan, for having me. Let's start off by hearing the story of Kayla's birth and your decision to become an activist on behalf of children with special needs. So we were true wandering Jews. We had lived all over the world. We moved to New York. And in 2008, we were probably living, we run a not-for-profit organization. We have thousands of singles we're involved with. And I always say that people thought like, when we grow up, we want to be just like the Samuels. We were these people that everybody was like, Well, you know, we traveled all over the world. We lived on the Upper West Side. We had two adorable kids. We ran an organization. We had jobs. And life was like seemingly perfect. And in 2008, February 25th, Kayla was born. And a few days later, a doctor walked into the hospital room. And he said those words that changed my life. Mrs. Samuels, did you do genetic testing? And, you know, I didn't have to wait for him to explain further. I knew where he was going with this. And my whole way through my pregnancy, not the whole way through, but like for the last six weeks of the pregnancy, I'd had this mother's intuition, something was wrong. I'd gone to the OBGYN. I'd taken my husband to the doctor with, and everything was fine. And I remember saying to my husband, but you can't see like autism on a scan. You can't see me. I just had this mother's intuition. And I remember praying when they prepared me for a C-section I was davening and I was like, God, please just give me the strength to deal with what comes my way. I wasn't praying, please give me a healthy child. Like my mother's intuition knew. 
But then, you know, they said the baby was healthy. We sent out an email to our whole database of thousands of participants. And a few days later, when the doctor raised those questions, I just knew where he was going with that. And he raised the suspicion of Down syndrome. To answer the question, had we done genetic testing? We had decided with our previous children, we hadn't done genetic testing. We didn't feel that we would ever abort or take radical steps. But my OBGYN was really pushing me. I was 34 years old. And in America, I was almost a mature age mom. And that was considered like from her side a liability. And she was really pushing me. And we decided to have the triple screen. And we spoke to our rabbi. And the rabbi was like, you'll see from there. And the triple screen came back, which is usually indicative. It's not conclusive that everything was great. And I remember my OBGYN saying, Mrs. Samuels, with results like this, everything, you know, I'm not concerned. Anyway, the second he said that, I knew that something was up. I sat bolt upright, and he raised his suspicion of Down syndrome, which was soon confirmed that our daughter was, you know, had Down syndrome. So that was the beginning. And I knew what Down syndrome meant. I really did because I have a first cousin who has Down syndrome. And I knew what it meant from a fear point of view, only because, you know, she had been institutionalized in the 70s. I knew the drama it created for my family. I sometimes saw Down syndrome children come to the synagogue I went to in South Africa, and I had fear. No, no you know, that was my only thing I knew about them. But I walked, you know, within half an hour of like, oh my God, or the fear, or the, like, what's going to happen to my children? What's the future going to be like? Will we be able to work? Will she be sick? Will she be healthy? Will we be able to live a normal life? I went to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I realized that this is what God's given me. And I felt I'd had two miscarriages between Kayla and my other daughter, Tamara. And I was like, for whatever reason, God wants me to have this neshama, not another child. You know, I looked in the mirror and I was like, we have an open home. And literally, we had a home in the Upper West Side of New York where we hosted thousands of people for events. The lost, the lonely, the searching, recovering drug addicts, anorexics, you name it. We were helping everyone out. And I was like, God, if God wanted to send a child to a home, why not send it to us? Like, why not send it to the people with an open home? And I walked out and I said to my husband, Gav, this is our thing. If this is what God wants from us, if we say no, if we reject her, if we're not happy, if we don't take this in our stride, then our whole life's a lie. And he looked at me and he agreed. And little did we know, two days later, we checked out the hospital and they check your hospital band to make sure you have the right baby. And he looked at me and he said, they might as well have just branded activist on our forehead because this is what we've just become. And we knew right there and then this was going to become our mission. What you just said reminds me of a quote from your book. I'm quoting you. You said, we went from asking why us to saying, of course us. This was the beginning of the road in my coming to terms with Kayla having Down syndrome. And I want to understand a little bit better what you mean by of course us. You mentioned your open home and the fact that you had so many people coming for every single Shabbat dinner. At one point in the book, your husband asked you, when's our next open Shabbat? This was in June, and yeah. I think it was October or something like that. Yeah. You obviously yeah. did Hachnasat Orchim in extremis in a wonderful way. What did you think 
when you said, of course us? What were you going to offer this child that made you unusually equipped to do so? Well, firstly, I credit my husband for his like very, you know, he was always there and standing by me. And I think that's one of the most important things because so many families have that as a challenge when you're on different paths. But why us to of course us was us just realizing that you can't change your reality. You can't change what's happened. It's already given. So we can spend the rest of our lives going, why us, why Kayla, why our children are going to struggle to get married or are we going to be able to work? You could ask every question, but really it was already there. Like we can't go back and change the situation that we now had a child with Down syndrome. And if we're going to be, of course, you know, so we went from why to what. And the what took us to, of course, us, because we were the people who had an open home. We were community leaders. We were trailing a path in other ways. And I didn't want to be that person who was sorry for myself, that person who sunk into depression, that person who was a victim. I was never a victim in other situations. So why would I now be with my child? You described some very vivid experiences growing up in apartheid South Africa, some really terrible things that were going on there. And you also describe how this was really ingrained in your education and you had to overcome that. And I wanted to know about how learning to overcome this concept of the other, this negative that you went over and were able to eliminate from your life, helped you also in dealing with others who might be classified as outside the mainstream, such as your daughter, Kayla, people with Down syndrome. Did that experience growing up in South Africa at that time assist you by seeing what the wrong way of doing things is? So while I think I had overcome, like on an intellectual level, and understanding why apartheid was wrong, and understanding that the whole premise of apartheid and differences were not necessarily anything I related to on a personal level or on a Torah values level. It was a very, very different story, having your own child as the other. And it wasn't that, I probably didn't even compare, like my child being an other in the context of apartheid and my child being an other in the context of special needs because there are so many things that make them worlds apart. But I do think that that process of understanding that there's outsiders and insiders, that there's pain, and I think one of the most important things I understood, that laws can change who's an outsider and who's an insider, or education can change who's an outsider and insider. So those were the things that affected me. Probably on an emotional level, it was much harder to come to terms with now my child's going to be the outsider or my children are going to, my other children will have struggles for having a special needs kid. But I did have this process of understanding that there are ways to change the world. Now, when you talk about education, you worked very hard to get Kayla admitted to a local Jewish school in New York, a highly regarded local school, and you encountered serious opposition, to say the least. Can you give some examples of what happened? <laughs> So, I mean, for us, it was a very heart-wrenching experience because both my husband and I, Balet Shiva, we neither of us grew up religious. And when you've chosen your path, you're so confident on it because we didn't just fall into it. It wasn't just our mom and dad kept Shabbat, so we did. We really fought so hard to be on a certain path. And my book details how I swung the pendulum trying to search who I was and where I'd land. And... The last thing I expected of my challenges was to be my challenge in the modern Orthodox Jewish community. 
I expected many things in the world to be stressful, but that was not what I expected. And I got an inkling when my kids were at a Jewish day school on the Upper West Side. There were both students there. One was four, one was six. And we tried to contact the school to ask if we could meet them about my daughter joining a two-year-old program. And nobody got back to us and emails weren't answered and phone calls weren't returned. And eventually we walked into our first meeting with the school and the principal sat there with his arms crossed and just his body language already told us where this meeting was going to go. And he said, you called this meeting. What is the purpose of this meeting? There was no warmth. And we started to explain what we were looking for and our hopes and our dreams for Kayla and that her siblings go to the school and we want her to have a Jewish education just like her siblings. And there was an early education principal also in her and they just looked at us. There was no warmth. There was no, we understand Mr. and Mrs. Samuels. They were like, well, we don't think our school's the right environment. And we're like, why is it not the right environment? We're talking about a two-year-old program on your website, your stated goals of your two-year-old program are socialization and communication skills. That's all we're asking for our child. And they were like, yeah, but we're not equipped. And they gave us all these, these like long list of reasons. And we we're like, she's two years old. By committing to now does not mean you're committing to first grade or high school. You're committing to one year at a time. And we gave them reassurances that we're full fee paying parents and We've always been involved in our kids. They knew us. We had a history. And we said she'll come with a basket of services from New York City. And why couldn't that be enough to get her included? And that there are only 18 kids in a class and, you know, plus a, a teacher and two assistants. Why is that not possible? And we were really given a cold shoulder. And they said, well, they will speak to some professionals and they'll get back to us. It took over a month. No one got back to us again, no calls returned, no emails. And then I got a call from the principal who said, Mrs. Samuels, we've decided the answer is no. They decided the answer was no before we walked in in the first meeting. Right. But I was like, so why is the answer no? And his answers to me were so unsatisfactory. One of which was, we spoke to hundreds of professionals and they all agree. I was like, hundreds of professionals? Tell me one professional, just tell me the name of one professional, tell me one professional who would make an assessment without meeting the family, meeting the child. And he couldn't give me that answer. Not even one name. Not one name. And then he went on to tell me about how, well, there's liability issues. I'm like, liability issues. And then he went on to tell me how after everything I challenged him on, there was another answer, how there's really no space for a full-time shadow. And I was like, Rap, I have two other children in the school and my children have shadows in their class. How is it possible that there's not room for another shadow? And that's when the penny dropped for me. I was like, are you saying you just don't have room for a Down syndrome child? Is that really what you're saying? Like, as long as they have potential to be Harvard perfect, like then they can apply, but my child... And he said, well, Mrs. Samuels, we've made the decision, the answer is no. And I said to him there and then, Rabbi, I can't accept no as an answer. It's incumbent on us as parents who have our children in the school, who've chosen a modern Orthodox life, who live in this high socioeconomic demographic, 
that we, we take this further. And he left it at that. And we then decided to reach out to the board of the school. And I can carry on telling you how that went. The story with that school does not have a happy ending, obviously. Correct. But I'm a little bit puzzled, though. Obviously, it might be just simple discrimination. But even when you say the school they will only accept students that theoretically could end up being Harvard professors. But you said in your older kids' classes, there were already kids who had shadows. So why specifically in Kayla's case, without ever having met her, do you think they made a distinction and said, we're not going to go that far with her, even though they will go with apparently other students? So as the rabbi told me, they did have a special education slash inclusion program in the school from first grade. And when I challenged him on that, he said to me, Mrs. Samuels, that's for children with learning disabilities, not cognitive disabilities. So they had made the distinction in their school that cognitive disabilities was different to learning disabilities. I that see. is what I understood. <laughs> that was one of my assumptions I came to in the early days. So I know you described the answer to this in the book, but I'd like our listeners to hear it as well. So I'm going to ask sure. regardless. Could someone justify the school's position by saying that even the wealthiest Jewish schools still require fundraising. They're always searching for money in order to maintain a certain standard. And perhaps they said, we simply don't have the resources in order to provide a proper education for your daughter. How would you answer that charge? So I have a few answers to that. One is that objectively in New York State or in New York City specifically, your children come with a basket of services and you have the right under New York City education law to, well, under American Disabilities and Inclusion Act and all the education laws, you have the right to put your child in the most appropriate education environment, free and appropriate education. So if your child has the right to go by law, then already you take out some of that. Some people didn't want black people to go to schools or women to get the vote, but the law changed that. So there is a law that stands by the side of people with disabilities that they have the right to be included. Second, my daughter came with a basket of services provided by New York City that's unprecedented in most places in the world. People move to New York City to get those basket of services. And your child comes with the, the words are different in different countries and how you word it, but they come with someone who manages the inclusion, they have a master's degree in special education, they manage the program between the staff and the therapist, they provide support in the class. Plus you're in a school where you've got 18, 20 children in class with two other teachers. That is not typical anywhere, except in maybe the higher end private school model. So to say that you don't have the resources, is that really you don't have the resources or you don't have the open heart and the willingness to have the resources? So that, really bothered me because I feel like Manhattan, one of the wealthiest zip codes in the world, kids are getting this private school education where kids came home in a two-year-old program every week with color photocopied laminated books of, with photos of what they've done for the week, but you don't have resources when that's provided by the city. The parents are full fee paying parents. Like what don't you have the resources? Is the resource open-heartedness or is it financial? You and your husband agonized about going public and the possible Chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name that might result, but you decided to do it anyway. How did you make that decision? 
So it was very hard for us. And we did speak to, it, it was a combination. One of the most important things was we did speak to some rabbis who did tell us that not only now, of course, with everything in Jewish life, you have more than one opinion, but we were told that not only should we, but it's our obligation because this is against Torah. It's our right. We would lead the way for other parents. So we for sure were given the encouragement. Some told us, don't do it. Even to this day, I've had people tell me that was terrible what you did. But there are definitely um, rabbinic characters who encouraged us and supported us. What does going public entail in this case? What did that mean for you? It started with first, we reached out to the co-presidents of the board and they gave us a 15 minute meeting. And when we gave us a few, we knew in advance that the answer was really no. And we walked in and the first thing we were told in that meeting, the answer is no, and it continues to be no. To which my husband said, well, we're not asking you to do what's easy. We're asking you to do what's right. And we realized that was going to be our rally cry. But from there, I decided to write a letter to the principal of the school. It was in a very emotional letter. And I decided I'm going to send it out to not only the entire school email list, but I had my own, you know, community of followers, an email list of 8,000 people. And the letter was basically telling the rabbi why I'm begging him to reconsider his position and to explain to him that not only are we fully paying parents and we'd be hands-on, but I said, you know, both my husband and I are Balchuba, and when we became religious, one of the things that really impressed us was a kid standing on the chair, saying a Devar Torah, and we like wanted a home like that. And we just want Kayla to have exactly what her siblings have, the same opportunity. And I said, if nothing moves him from that, I said, the one thing I really want him to understand, and I told him a story about my son, who at the time was six years old, who wanted to have a beggar sleep in our home. New York's famous for your beggars on your street corner. And my husband gave her money because she said it was freezing cold and she didn't have anywhere to sleep. And he gave her money to some places, let them sleep rather than going to a shelter. And he really, he was like, but other. One let her sleep in our house. And then my husband said, well, whatever. And he said, don't tell Ima. And my husband said, why don't tell Ima? And he said, because Ima will say, I'm so wonderful. Ima will say, oh, you're so wonderful. you and he's like, I'm not wonderful. It's just what Jews do. And this was the inside of a six-year-old. And I said, Rabbi, if this is what he's thinking, I don't want him and his sister to wake up one day and say, where was my school? Where was my community when my daughter wanted to be included? And I published that letter and I started a group on Facebook, Kaylee's World. And my goal was to have this as the topic of discussion from gefilte fish to dessert in every single Jewish family on the Upper West Side. And I probably did achieve that. And I realized after that, that most people, even people in my inner circle, had no idea how tough it was to, have, to be a family with a child with special needs, how impossible inclusion was. And I realized I needed to take it the next step and have forums for education where we could educate people where we could tell them more. And I created a whole series of forums that addressed inclusion in education, in community. I brought in professionals to speak. What I wasn't expecting was that the first forum to arrive 
and just see like media vans parked outside. And I'd been involved in community for a while and running events. I had my own media list, but I didn't realize that I'd actually hit on a core. And suddenly there was like light camera action. There was press there, online press, TV. And the story really made it to like the Jewish news of Australia, London, it was in Israel, the New York, multiple Jewish newspapers in America. Our story became a rallying cry for all people who wanted to include their children. Not because it was easy, but because it's the right thing to do. Because the law said you could do it, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, there was our goal. And it wasn't just about children who are high functioning. It's about all special needs kids and kids who are, have physical disabilities, cognitive disabilities. I suddenly realized we were like the voice of so many different families struggling with the same issue. And to give credit where credit is due, even though the school you were dealing with at the time where your children were enrolled did not come through, SAR Academy in Riverdale reached out to you and they were very welcoming and your children switched over there. And when Kayla began school, she went to SAR. I want to ask about that original school. Have they subsequently changed their position or have you had any additional contact with them? So I know that, in fact, some of the people who are actually now in the new administration were people who were actually involved with us and on our side of the fight in those days and were right up front and center in these forums advocating for not only is it the right thing to do, but they said, this is the right thing for our regular children. They'll learn empathy. They'll learn teamwork. They'll learn sincerity. They'll learn life isn't perfect. Like they were advocating. So many years later, they actually have a whole new administration and I do believe they've taken a big um, shift in terms of how they manage their attitude on special education and inclusion. Um, so I'm hoping that somewhere along the line, the spike was helped shift the needle for that. Let's hope so. Switching gears a little bit, I was fascinated with your interactions with Professor Ruven Feuerstein, Zichron Adivracha of Jerusalem. You mentioned him in your book, and you quote him saying, you can expect exactly what you expect from your other children, tertiary education and grandchildren. You will have to work very hard, and so will Kayla, but she has the potential. Promise me two things that you will never put this child in a special education school and that you will invite me to her chuppah. You also write that your husband, who's a physician, had grown tired of what effectively are magic pills, people telling you how to fix the situation or solve this problem. But Professor Feuerstein was different. What was different about his approach? So the special needs solutions are often divided into two worlds. They're like hope in a bottle where it's unsubstantiated by research and they're just giving parents hope and parents are so desperate for seeing the future, they'll pay a lot of money without real proof that something works. Or the other attitude is like, God gave you a special needs child. That's, you know, we'll do the best to make life as comfortable for all of you as possible. And neither of those messages resonated. My husband, who's a doctor, and if something doesn't have like double-blind studies and published in journals, then it doesn't exist. Right. And I was not this passive kind of parent who was just going to say, well, you know, God gave me a special needs child, so let's just give her the most comfortable environment or make it as easy on the family. He spoke our language because he has a book, and the book is called If You Love Me, don't accept me as I am. 
it's the famous book in poetry in world that they give to all the parents. But really, the message of that is if you love me, help me become the best person I can be. Challenge me. Take me the next steps. And the whole message of that is while you should always push your kid to have the next goal and push your kid ahead, just don't be disappointed if they don't reach it. And I was like, that is what I'm doing with my regular kids. I'm a Jewish mom. I want my kids to be 110%, of course, of whatever their potential is. But I'm not disappointed if they're not, you know, the best captain of the soccer team and, you know, the smartest kid in class. But I do push them. And why wouldn't I do the same for my own child with Down syndrome? Why would that be different? So he not only did he speak our language in terms of, like, we were willing to put in the work and the effort, and he they gave us a pathway of how to do that. And he also had a lot of established research about successes of reaching people with special needs. Have you found that his approach has been successful in your case? So we credit a lot of our success to Feuerstein programming. I have no question in my mind, my daughter was born high functioning and I have absolutely no control over that. She was given whatever genetic ability she has. But I believe that even if I've seen many parents who want to give their kids everything and there are many parents who've tried their best to give their kids 110%. But they gave us A, a pathway of how to achieve this, and B, they gave us a philosophical concept of not just believing it's okay, whatever she is, she is. It was like, no, she can be the best she can be. And that's just a very different way of seeing the world. Since you've made Aliyah, obviously your children are now in Israeli schools, have you found a difference in terms of the acceptance of children with Down syndrome in Israel from what happened to you in the United States? It's a whole different world here because Israel essentially is a welfare state that basically says, we'll look after all our people. And it's also a country that divides people in boxes, whether you learn in a Haredi system or the modern Orthodox or the secular, the, you know, there's so many frameworks that exist here and everybody lives either in a box and it's the welfare state and there's a lot of chesed to special needs so it's a complete different challenge to situations that i had in america where a board member of the school would say to me but mrs samuels you chose to bring this child into the world this is your you know don't make your problems ours we never encountered that kind of antagonism to us for having a Down syndrome child. Everybody's full of love and care. The problem here is the system just does not have the funding, the structure, the training, anything to be able to be vaguely successful. So while in New York, a kid came with a basket of services to a small Jewish day school, I mean, a small classroom with adequate resources in the classroom, and therefore, in my opinion, a lot of opportunity to be successful. Here we came with all the goodwill, all the chesed, but no real system structure or funding. Ah, that raises another question about chesed in general, because you talk about what chesed means in your book. You describe how people often look at chesed as something you check, like a box that you can tick off. Someone comes by and plays with Kayla for an hour, check, I got a mitzvah, or you donate to an organization, check, that's another mitzvah. And you say that chesed really should be seen as something which is opening up your heart and allowing yourself to accept people for who they are and to give everyone the same opportunities. 
So can you describe how to translate that into practice? Because obviously it's much easier to tick off a box and to do a specific action. How would you suggest that people open their hearts and create and inculcate in themselves the sense of acceptance? Okay, so firstly, I hate chesed. And I've written a lot about why I hate chesed because chesed is exactly that. It's just a tick in the box. I don't want my child to be the token child sitting in the back of the class or back of a B'nai Kiva program just because someone felt like, oh, I'm doing good by having her. There's nothing that makes me more crazy than when someone says to me, your kid's so cute. They mean it well. They mean my 12-year-old is not cute. My dog is cute. My puppy's cute. She's not cute. I really believe chesed should be taken off the agenda when we're talking about this. Opening your heart, opening your home, that's a whole different level. That's not a one-hour activity. That's not a one-day activity. That's not a check. But how do you change that? And the way you change that really starts with education. And hence the reason I'm such an advocate and talk out about this. And my life is an open book. I post every struggle and every success, whether it's on Facebook or other social media. I write blogs about it. Because unless people understand the challenges, because we say like, oh, well, have chesed, but if people don't understand, they put them in a box that they expect some like, you know, not-for-profit organization to deal with. And, and then that's exactly what happens. You get an hour a week of some teenager giving their time. No, I tell my story in a real unfiltered way. I share the struggles, the successes, because I'm hoping that I can educate people. The second level of education is, and I do a lot less of this now that I live in Israel because of language, but is speaking to high school students, speaking to rabbinic students. I spoke to medical students studying genetics. I'll speak to any group who wants to have me talk to them because only when people truly understand challenges, opportunities, do they open their mind. I know I'm a parent of a child with Down syndrome. I'm trying, I had no understanding of this world one day before my, and I even had a cousin with Down syndrome and I didn't even understand what this world meant. Unless you can educate people. And then you have to give people opportunities to participate in a real meaningful way. And that's why I ask rabbis and I ask schools to do inclusion in a tactless way. Not just like, well, now we had a little conversation with the girls in class. Um, Inclusion is really a good thing. Tick. No. Like invite a kid to your house. Tell the parents, you know, do something that makes, makes another child feel included. Put a bimmer in your shul so the wheelchair accessible person can get called to the Torah. Don't just talk about it and do these like easy little superficial things. It's like, to me, it's like giving the waitress a tip. You know, whether you do or don't, like it doesn't really make such a big difference. No, this is not that. This is about structurally changing our society, but that starts with education. In that case, Jody, how have you changed your attitudes and your practices as a parent since Kayla's birth? You talk about changing everybody else's attitudes. I'm sure that a lot has changed in your own life as well in terms of the way you see things too. Um, I think that I had to have a lot of like personal reckoning with myself. How do I feel about this? Because I came from a family that had a lot of negative associations with special needs. I personally had a lot of negative associations. 
So firstly, I had to deal with myself on an emotional level and come to terms with the reality that I actually do have a special needs child. And I don't just have a child that's a banner for special needs inclusion, but actually I have to accept my kid because I have to show that I truly accept for the good, the bad, the ugly, the stresses, whatever else. And only then can I show other parents who have special needs children that it's possible because I think so often special needs parents themselves, parents with special needs children, shy away from the public eye. And I've said, it's okay, put your child out there front and center, but you have to walk the walk and talk the talk yourself. Um, the second thing is my program of trying to educate people and put myself out there. And third is truly having an inclusive home. And that doesn't just mean with special needs. Like we truly have a home where my children don't see color, they don't see religion, they don't see age, they don't see financial, because only when you actually live a truly inclusive world, you can't be inclusive and say, well, we only allow this hashkafic realm of Judaism in our home that we're inclusive to all special needs people. You really have to have an inclusive world in every way, and I often have to check myself. There are times when I have a knee-jerk reaction. I run a singles organization, and I will have someone maybe who's socially undesirable for my group to come in for whatever reasons, you know, the word never, the person doesn't mm -hmm. fit the... And I have to say to myself, this is my organization. He'll scare off the part of my group. I've worked so hard to recruit people. And then I have to say to myself, Jody, you have to be honest. Is this how you would want someone to treat your child? And sometimes you have to make hard choices because you realize that your instinctive reaction to the other when it's not special needs is different to how your instinctive reaction is to your own child. Speaking of your own children, how have you balanced Kayla's needs with the needs of your other children who don't have the same special needs as Kayla? Has it been a challenge to do that? It's for sure been a challenge. You know, I always knew from day one that we'd be spending so much time and energy on Kayla and that it would be a challenge from a time point of view and even from an emotional point of view for my other children. There's no magic wand in this scenario. There's no magic solution. We try and make sure we have family time. We try and make sure we have alone time with the kids. It's very important to show our other children that what's important to them is important to us. And it's not always about the amount of time you spend with them, but it's about caring about what's important to them and making sure that's important to you. When they're younger, because now they're teenagers and we're the most boring people they've ever met and they have such busy lives, so it's less of a, it's less of a challenge. But when they were younger, making sure that we did build in alone time, even if it means literally scheduling it in your calendar and saying, going to get nails done with Tamira today, that was needed in order to balance it. Um, and I think also just open conversation. They like, understand that this isn't an ideal world. And it's important that they feel partners in the process rather than observers in the process that they feel like they're part of this journey. This is not Ima and Abba's journey with Kayla, that they're all part of the journey. Jody, who have your role models been when you look for people who inspire you in terms of the challenges of raising a child with special needs? You know, I've had a, you know, I had a lot of disappointment. It was very hard for me to come to terms with the reality of having a child and the community's rejection. I was ready to just 
give it up in some ways because I was like, if this is really Torah, then I don't want Torah. And my husband had to, he's always like much more rational and calm than me. He was like, don't judge Judaism by the people, judge it by the Torah. But we did have people that stood out. And um, Slobby Youngrice Wolf, who's Riverton Youngrice's daughter, I called her when Kayla was born um, from the hospital. She was a teacher, a mentor of mine. And I called her, like, after I called my parents, she was the next person I called. And she was at the hospital an hour later. And she walked in there. And she was like, Bubalai, she's so beautiful. She's so special. And she gave her a bracha. And she made us feel like every child is a gift. And I'd always admired Slavi's teachings in her classes. And she writes books. And she's taught on many of my programs. But I really appreciated her voice and her wisdom and her unconditional acceptance of all special needs. Also Rabbi Rafi Feuerstein, he is Professor Ruben Feuerstein's son. He gave us a lot of chizok and perspective on both, you know, religion and raising a special needs child. Jody, we're almost out of time, so I want to ask one final question. If you can leave our listeners with one message about inclusion, what would you tell them? that it's not easy, but it's right. And it's really that simple. If every parent could teach their children, even if they had a play date with another child that wasn't the most fun play date, or this wasn't the most desirable kid to hang out with for the day, but you did something because this is the right thing to do. While I don't think that that ultimately changes the world as much as I wanted to do. I know that for Kayla, it will change the world. And for every other special needs child, it will change their reality right there and then. But only when the kids understand and the parents share this message will the next generation be able to truly take on a more inclusive approach. And it's not just to special needs, it's to the others, as we mentioned, in all streams of society. So what doing inclusion is not easy, but it's right. Having a child with special needs is not perfect and life isn't perfect, but life can still be wonderful with a special needs child. And there is so much joy that we get and she's added so much value to our life and she's changed the whole community's knee-jerk reaction by the way we handled it to like, oh my gosh, you have special needs too. Special needs can be dealt with. And there is a message that Kayla keeps shining her light about it doesn't always have to be just the perfect way in order to be a really good life and a meaningful life. And that's a message that can take people, especially now in Corona, we've lived in a time where the world's just pivoted and changed unbelievably in a week in a way we would never imagine, but that she teaches us all a lesson that her imperfections can help us understand the world can still be wonderful in spite of us. Jody Samuels, the work you're doing is inspiring. The book you wrote is entitled Chutzpah, Wisdom, and Wine, The Journey of an Unstoppable Woman. I highly recommend it. It's very entertaining as well as enlightening and inspiring. <laughs> Jody, thank you for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for joining me. If you have an idea for an issue facing the Orthodox world that belongs on the Orthodox conundrum, please let me know by writing to scott, S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com. 
please go to jewishcoffeehouse.com where we have numerous podcast series as well as my blog, The Scott Conversation. Jewish Coffee House also has a Patreon page where you can support these podcasts and receive bonus episodes, merch, and more. The Patreon link is in the description of this podcast as well as on jewishcoffeehouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.